unto thee, O Lord. Do I lift up my Today in Tupelo, the grandparents are Stan Wilder Pounds and great grandparents are Julius Lee and Billy Wells. Sympathy is also extended to Allison Wade and the death of her grandmother, Miss Sue Mooney, uh, from the Dry Creek community. We've been asked to remember Don Green, who will be having surgery tomorrow in Nashville at Vanderbilt Hospital. Uh, we need to remember Brother Green this week. Food pantry item for this week is mac and cheese. And all ladies are invited to a bridal shower in honor of Sam Farr and Lakin Green this coming Sunday, 1 until 3 in the annex. I want to call your attention to the Sunday schedule that's printed in this week's bulletin. Please pick up one of those. Uh, we will have an 8.30 service beginning on November the 1st. It will be here Inside the auditorium, uh, masks are required for that service. So if you feel like you don't want to wear a mask, please don't come to that service. Come to the 1030 service. Also, Sunday night, uh, 5 o'clock, there will be a, uh, an adult class. We'll be moving into the annex. Uh, masks are required for that class. There will also be a, a Sunday night class here in the auditorium where masks are recommended. So uh, please uh, pick those up, uh, pick up a bulletin and check that out uh, for the changes that's coming on November the 1st. Brother Kent. Good evening, everybody. It's great to see you. Hope you've had a really good day today. 
And I don't know of a better way to finish a day off than to be spending it in the study of God's Word. And we're still continuing our study of how to build a great church. We've already been through 11 lessons in that series. Can you believe that? It's hard for me to imagine that's true, but it is. So we'll be really reflecting on some things tonight and talking about how you and I can be a part of revival a great revival in this church. Before we start, though, let's sing a song, okay? Number two, we'll sing the song, then we'll have a prayer and begin our study. Number two. We praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for which is our sins and enemies now Hallelujah, glory, hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, glory, we praise thee, O God, for the Spirit of life who has shown Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to assemble in this place tonight and to study from your word. And I pray, Father, that you will help us as we think about the revival that you can bring about in our body, this church in Boonville, that we would be excited about that, the prospect of it. I thank you, Father, for all the things that we have studied thus far and the responsibility that so many people have taken to be a part of the great things that are happening here. But Lord, it is, it is my big and audacious desire that every single member of this church will take on that responsibility, that it won't be borne by just a few, but that all of us will take ownership and that we will grasp every opportunity that is put in our hands so that together, all of us together, can be a party to the good things that are happening here. I pray, Father, that you will help me as I do my best to lead our thoughts tonight about being a people of great revival. And I pray that I can communicate it in such a way that Every person here will feel the impact of it. Thank you, Lord, for giving me that opportunity to speak it, and I'm thankful for the audience of those who will hear it, and I pray you bless their ears and their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, there's a neat little text from the book of Psalms, chapter 85 and verse 6. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? A question to the Lord. Won't you do that for us? Won't you? And here's the thing about revival. Revival is a re-enlivening. You were alive, something happened. Revive us. You know, bring our life back to us. Lord, won't you do that so that your people can rejoice in you? I think it's interesting because in this text, that's kind of the desire of the people who had been in sin. So if you go back a few verses to verse 2, you find out, wait a minute, these, pers- these people had been in sin, had been living in iniquity, they've been forgiven. And now the fear is, oh, wait a minute, now I've been forgiven of my sin, but is the Lord angry with me? You know, is He still holding this against me? Does He have a grudge? So Lord, won't you just revive us again, bring us back to life? That's quite a plea. And for a people who've already experienced forgiveness... The idea is, wait a minute, I was what I should have been. I stumbled into iniquity and sin. I've now been forgiven, but I just haven't been restarted yet. A lot of people feel that way. It may not have been a a big commotion as in some upset in the church, but it may be just an individual situation. They were in sin, had their sin forgiven, but as yet haven't really gotten back into their place, haven't gotten into the rhythm of the life of the church yet. Or I wonder sometimes generally, why is it that we come together? What, I wonder, would you say if I asked, why are you here? Are you here because you feel compelled to be here? Or do you feel a conviction to be here? Is there a feeling of obligation? Or is it more like dedication? I I hope that all of us, while recognizing that we do have a responsibility to God, still the reason that we're here is because we're convicted to be here. Because we feel dedicated to the Lord. And I also wonder about the Z word, the word zeal, the enthusiasm of it all. Yeah, I'm here, and I am dedicated, and I do have this conviction, but, you know, when, when you come, is there, is there like a pouring out of yourself? Is it a real, a real involvement of your heart and your soul, or... Has time just caused you to get to where you're just kind of going through the motions? There is still a love uh, attachment and there's still a heart for it, but maybe just not the zeal. Not lagging in diligence, 
fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, that kind of thing. That's a statement from Romans chapter 12 and verse 11. I think of that often when I think about my own attitude toward worship with the saints, my work in the church. I don't want to lag about. I don't want to be dragging along in my service to the Lord. I want to be fervent in spirit. The word fervent or fervency carries with it the idea literally of being on fire like you just can't stop. You're in absolute total movement constantly, energized and serving the Lord. I love what Isaiah did when he had his sin purged. When the Lord was looking for somebody to become active, you know what he said, here am I, send me. If you want to expand that idea, it's this. Lord, here I am. am. What, What would keep you from using me? What I would love for all of us to do in our prayer life, if you dare, because I promise you God will answer the prayer, is to ask God to put you to work, to get you busy, because he will provide you with the means and the opportunity. Revival is the idea... I've stumbled, I've become weak, maybe even inactive, but I'm not dead. I just need to be rejuvenated. Now, revival requires some things of us, and we're basically going to start at the bottom because revival means there's nowhere to go but up. I don't know where we might be as a church in the scope of things. If you were going to make a scale, exactly where are we? I'm, I'm not real sure. But I know where I want us to be. I know where I think you want us to be. I want us to be a great church. I want us to be everything that the Lord expects of us to be. I don't say let's be a great church as though I'm saying let's be a great church compared to anybody else. That, that is not the point. I hope every church of the Lord is a great church, one that is aspiring to do exactly what the Lord has commanded, to be everything that the Lord has ever hoped for us to be. So here are some things that I believe that the Lord is expecting of us. Revival requires, for one thing, it requires realization. Let's put it another way we got to get real with where we are. We have to make some serious determinations about our place. What do we look like spiritually? I will tell you that the matter of revival itself is a painful exercise. Now, revival means that I'm bringing the life back and I would liken it to those attempts that we often make to restore health. Sometimes something goes awry. I see JT sitting up here. He had back problems, so he had surgery to correct it. Many of you have had such surgeries. He's had complications with that, but his ultimate desire in having that surgery was to get better. Now, here's what happens almost always when you have surgery. 
The idea is, if I have the surgery, the likelihood is I will get better. And so I go have the surgery. When I come out of the surgery, almost always the first experience that I have is a painful one. <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought I had the surgery to get better. Well, hold on there now. Yeah, you did. And eventually you will get better, but almost always there is pain in the process of the reviving to good health. Same is true spiritually. Revival can be, well, it can be a painful experience. Now, here's part of the reason why. It's because in reviving or trying to get better from a worse condition, sometimes we're grappling with maybe sin that's crept in. I want us, as we're getting real about our situation, to realize, first of all, that maybe we're not as in bad a situation as we once were, right? Because if you're a child of God, that means that you've obeyed the gospel. And if you've obeyed the gospel, you have transcended some serious problems at least one time in your life. When you recognized sin, you probably recognized it like John would say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. What you came to understand is the wrong choices that you made were lawless. In other words, God's law. So what you did was you broke God's law. And somewhere along the way, you came to recognize that, wait a minute, God's done a lot of good things for me. At the top of the list was sending his son to die for me. So I don't, I don't want to make God upset, so I've got to quit this lawlessness. I've got to get out of this sinful situation. Maybe another thing that motivated you was to come to realize that in that sinful situation, you had Romans chapter 6, verse 23 as a fearful text. And that is that the wages of sin is death. Listen, that's not your condition now. So if we're just kind of taking wholesale look at, at where we are, we realize, well, we're not at the very bottom. We've moved along somewhere. We've had our sins forgiven. That's great. But we ought not get wrapped up also in a sinlessness because the fact remains, John reminds us in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we're in need in that context of forgiveness that comes through confession. But there is a peril that exists. Even if I'm, even if I'm struggling to keep my head above water, there is that fateful situation, fateful situation where maybe, maybe I've really digressed. Maybe I've fallen back into, into the pursuit of sin and transgression in sin and turning my back on the law of God, a willful sort of sin. And talk about a fearful decline. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who rejected Moses' law died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is of mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 
It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the fearfulness is, in this context is not for the alien sinner who's never known God. This is for the person that we're talking about in need of revival. This is the person who had been saved and had their sins washed away, was free from sin and death scenario, and yet now they've willfully gone into sin. Listen, if any of us are in that situation, we need to get out of that immediately. You say, Ken, look around you. You got a building full of people listening to this message, and many of which are online hearing it, that aren't in that situation. They have not willfully sinned. And what I want to suggest to you is, don't be so sure about that. Let's get real for a minute. It is possible for us, if not, we're not real careful in our walk with the Lord, if we're not diligent in guarding our steps and protecting the decisions that we make, we're not real good students of the Bible, we just kind of flounder around in our relationship with God, there is a very good, there's a very good chance that we're in a situation that we don't even realize we're in. Now, Ken, how could that be so? I would remind you of a church, by the way. It was a church that was in the city of Laodicea. That church, according to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16, was already judged by the Lord this way. The Lord said, you are lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. And because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. You say, Ken, we would never be that. You know, we would never be either cold or hot, never be lukewarm, never be a group of people just kind of trotting along with no enthusiasm, no dedication to the work, no, no desire to get better. We, we've been talking about being a great church. That would never be us. But the very next verse to me is very telling. It gets into that scenario where I suggested that maybe there are times when something's happening we're not even aware of. You see, that passage says that when the church looked at itself, they said, we are rich. We've become wealthy. We have need of nothing. We're doing great. We got great attendance. We got a great contribution. We pay all our bills. We got money to send other places. We are wonderful. But he says, the Lord does, what you do not know, stop right there for a second, what you think you know is you're rich, you're wealthy, you don't need anything. What you don't know, he says, is that actually you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Wait a minute. Is it possible for a church to be lukewarm that doesn't know it's lukewarm? According to this, it is. In fact, it's possible for a church to be under a delusion that everything is great when it really isn't. It's very much the opposite of what they conclude about themselves. It's important for a church to get very real 
about where it is. Not just to look at the surface issues and say, we must be doing okay. We've got our finger on the pulse of the church. We've got good attendance and good contribution. We're fine. That is not the measure of the church. In fact, according to this, you probably wouldn't even know if you weren't looking closely. I know it's true here because uh, I see the bulletin every week, and I know we've kind of got one of those little catchphrases. says something good about us. In ours, we tell people about how friendly we are. And in fact, uh, this past Sunday, we had a visitor to tell the elders or wrote down on a card or something that we really were a friendly church. And I thought, yes, because if you have a little caption up at the top of your bulletin that says you're friendly... Well, what should you be? <laughs> you better be friendly, right? False advertising, not here. Boonful, we're a friendly church. We say we are and we back it up. I remember as a child growing up and seeing the bulletin for years and years and years and years. At the top of our bulletin, it said, a friendly church with a vital message. Wow, that covers all the bases, doesn't it? We're friendly and we also teach the truth. Every year, year after year, printed on every bulletin. Well, you better be friendly, and you better teach the truth. How many of you have been to a congregation where you got the build, uh, bulletin, and at the top was this caption, We are a lukewarm church, and the Lord wants to spit us out of His mouth. He just wants to vomit. Now, I know that's a little long. It needs to be a little more pithy than that. But you get the idea? Nobody says that. Because what we want people to think is the very best of us. I mean, we're, we're friendly. We, we, we teach the truth. We're good. But, but does a statement on a bulletin make it so? I mean, just because I say that's so, it doesn't make it so. The church in Laodicea said... Hey, we're rich, we're wealthy, we don't need anything. The Lord says, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't have anything. You are in need. It's important for us in terms of revival that we have some realization of where we are. Are we where we should be? Revival requires that kind of realization. Revival also requires repentance. I said revival is painful, like surgery. Repentance is hard. Why would you say that? Why, why is repentance hard or, or, or difficult? Repentance is difficult because it is against the will of the person who is doing the repenting. If we're going to have revival, requires we're going to have to repent, but since repentance is a difficult thing and flies in the face of a person's will, it's hard to get people to change. We'll not look at the entire parable because the parable has its own meaning. But I want to look at a couple of statements that are in it. It's from Matthew chapter 21. We'll just look at verses 28 and 29. 
In this passage, you have a father who has a vineyard and he has two sons. And he says to the first son, go and work in my vineyard. The son says, I will not. But then later he regretted it and went. Okay, that's all we're going to look at in this story. I want you to think about repentance and its action as against a person's will. What was the will of the son toward his father's demand that he go work in the vineyard? His will was, no, (laughs) no, my will is not to work in the vineyard. But then it says later, he regretted it, he repented, and then he went and worked in the vineyard. You see, he repented, he changed his will. Initially, his will was not working in the vineyard. Later, after thinking about it, he repents or he regrets what he has done, and now he turns the other direction, and instead of not doing the will of the Father, he decides to do the will of the Father. Now, Ken, why would it be that repentance is so hard? Because a person's will is... Another way to say that is, here's what I want to do. You know, here's what I want to do. Until I decide I'm going to do different, I never will do anything differently. And if I do it reluctantly, that's not the same. I heard this story about a teacher. Little Johnny continually stood up right there beside his desk. teacher said, Johnny, sit down. He said, no, I will not sit down. She said, I can make you sit down. He said, well, then you make me sit down. And so she got up from her desk. She went to Johnny, and she promptly sat him down in that chair, and she threatened him with everything she could think of, even that she's going to call his parents if he gets up out of that chair. She said, Johnny, are you going to stand up again? He said, teacher, I'm not going to stand up out of this chair, but in my mind I'm going to stand up. Repentance is not, well, I'll go through the motions, but I really don't want to do this. No, it has to be not just only the action, but the heart. It is a change of heart and mind. It results in a different action altogether. Repentance is tough, but God commands repentance. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 30, it's in the context of a bunch of people who are idolaters, And, you know, God spent his time with his own people to enact change with those surrounding nations. But with the mind that one of these days, Son of God's going to come to the earth, he's going to die for these people, then the gospel will be shared with everybody. Then they can repent and turn from their evil ways. In this passage, he says, Truly the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now, today, commands all men everywhere. Commands all men everywhere to repent. You must change your heart and your mind. You say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, what you've just said is, my will, not your will, Lord. Wait, what? I just didn't want to do. I want to do some things that God says. Okay, well, you're complying with some things, but God isn't looking for 80% of allegiance or even 90%. The Lord is looking for 100% devotion, commitment from His followers. So if I'm giving 100%, that means that it's going to be His will and not my will that's done. Repentance requires that I turn from my will, my lawless will, where I've turned my back on Him, 
and I'm committing myself to go His way. Now God commands all men everywhere to do that. In Luke chapter 13, verse 3, another passage you might think of, except you repent, you will all likewise, and then this word, perish. Without repentance, without turning away from lawlessness, sin, without turning away from that, you're going to perish. Same idea is taught in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. God's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay. I think that's one of the things that, talking about a person's will, that was so frustrating, JT, with that trip that we took to Guyana. Now, JT and I would walk miles. That is not an exaggeration. We would walk miles to go have a Bible study with someone. The houses were miles apart. We'd have a study. It would be great. We would plan a second study. We'd then walk miles again to get back to study with these people. They would be like, yes, I want to obey the gospel. Well, you understand that repentance is a prerequisite to obeying the gospel. A person has to repent and be baptized, Acts 2, verse 38. Well, sad to say, here is a household, almost every household, the very same, scattered throughout this very poor nation. Here's a household that's got a father and a mother and a bunch of kids, but they're not married. They're living in a state of fornication. And they're continuing that. And the other sad part of that is, if he gets tired of her, he'll leave her and those kids behind. He'll go find him another woman somewhere, have children with her, over and over and over. I always thought, JT, when I got these reports about the Guyana work, that it was strange. Not only did they list the baptisms that they often had, but then there was this list of weddings. And I was like, wait, we had so many baptisms, so many weddings, what's that got to do with missionary work? Well, I'll tell you what it had to do with missionary work. Those represented people who determined to repent. That is, most of the folks said, whoops, I'm sorry, I can't obey the gospel because I'm not getting out of this relationship. In fact, of all the studies that we had, very few were willing to repent. To them, it was harder to give up the sin than it was to obey the gospel. Repentance is a requirement. Now, if we are a church and we are trying to be enlivened, then whatever it is that took the spirit out of us before, whatever it took the heart out of us, whatever caused us to just kind of mope about for a while, we've got to turn away from that. Whatever it is, whatever weight that is besetting us and holding us back, we've got to cut that loose because that is holding back our progress. We've got to repent of that if ever we are going to be revived. Now, here's the thing. I was talking about zeal earlier. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Well, what have they done? Full of zeal fired up, 
but not submitting themselves to God. Until they turn away from their own will and submit to the will of God, they would never be saved. That is true in every scenario. If I'm holding on to something other than the will of God, then I need to repent. Because if I don't repent, then you, you read the passage, you're going to perish. Okay, so my desire is to have revival. And that revival is going to come as a result of being real, and it's also going to come as a result of repentance. So I want to talk about our revival requiring a return. You see, our heart has got to be in this. You say, boy, Ken, that, you know, that was, that was a great series of lessons. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. Okay, so what? You know, so what? I, I'm, I, you know, it's flattering for people to enjoy something that you teach. But you know what? I'll just tell you the dirty little secret here. I do not preach or teach so that people can enjoy it. I do this because I think if it's the will of God, first of all, I'm going to change, and then I'm going to, I'm going to do my dead-level best not to stand up here as a hypocrite and then tell you what to do. I'm going to change and make my commitment with the hope that you will too. So what is it that we've been doing over all this time? What is it we've been studying? What are we trying to do? We've been trying to light the fire of a revival. We've been doing our very best to motivate all of us to get in our mind and get in our heart to make an absolute commitment to be a great church. I did not say, let's be the greatest church in Boonville or in Prentice County. Let's be the greatest church in Mississippi or the United States. Don't you ever say that I said that because that's not what I mean. What I mean is, let's be a great church. Let's be the church Jesus expects for us to be. All churches have some kind of limitation. I don't know what our limitation is, and I don't ever want to know, because I don't want us to put a ceiling on what we can be. But I know that if the Lord is with it, and He does want the church to grow, that if we're doing our thing, you can count on the Lord doing His, and we will grow. And if we look around and we say we're not growing, you know whose fault that is? That'll be our fault, not the Lord's fault, because He is raring to go. So what has He told us to do thus far? Well, one thing He told us is we've got to have a great purpose. And He went so far as to give it to us, to go and preach the gospel to every creature. That is our goal to reach out to our community. That is our responsibility. We have a purpose and we need to get after that. You say, well, we've got benevolent cases around here too, and we've got this and we've got that. Great! Let's use every avenue that we can to reach a soul for Jesus Christ and to fulfill our great purpose. We also have a great unity and compassion. Unity means we're in this together. You remember the way uh, Philippians chapter 2 put it, that we were of one accord, literally of hearts beating together in unison. We are like one body with one heart. We are together in everything. We rise and fall together. I saw on Facebook yesterday a couple or three of our members got awards, and you know how I felt about that? 
I was like, well, they didn't give me an award. No. I was like, yes. Because as that water rises, what happens to the rest of us? Well, we're all in the same ship, right? So that water level just raises all the ships together. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice with them. When I see something good happening to you, that's happening to me too because you're part of my family. In fact, it's more than that. We are a part of the same one body. Grasp it now. It's not just a bunch of us individuals. We are all one. So when something good happens to one of our members, it happens to all of us. And we have compassion for one another in that context in the sense that when you suffer, I'm going to suffer with you too. And then we also have great preaching. It's great not because it tickles our ears or it makes us cry or laugh or any of that stuff. Maybe it will, but it's not great because of that. It's great because it's the Word of God. If it's not the Word of God, then so what? That doesn't matter. What matters is that the preaching here, the teaching here, is from the Bible. This is God speaking, not the preacher, not the vessel. We also have to have great leading, our leadership, like our elders and our deacons, those who are in positions of authority over us. We need to respect them and motivate them to just lead. Here's what I want them to do. I want them to charge ahead. Don't you? I want them to run far ahead of us. We're just going as hard as we can to keep up with them. Hallelujah, right? Amen. I want to see that. I want leaders who are way out in front, and we're just doing our dead-level best to catch up because we are all on fire so much. Fervency. We also have a great vision. And when we say vision... Like when we were talking about purpose, talking about our thing, what we were told to do. Vision is we have an idea of where we're headed. We know where we're going. We've got to have a plan of where this thing is going in terms of its growth. We need to have great outreach. That is community outreach for sure and a broader outreach. Yeah, I want to reach Mississippi for the Lord too. I want to reach the United States for the Lord. Yes, I want to reach the whole world if I can because God didn't say I had to limit it, did he? I mean, why would we think small? Let's think huge. Let's reach the whole world for Jesus. But the only way we're going to do that is start, well, start where we are. We've got to start where we are and then branch out. And God will help us with that. We also have to have great families. And that's also talking about our future because we want our parents to be members of the Lord's body, saved people. And then we want them to motivate their children to obey the gospel too. And then we'll have the next successive generation in place to carry on the work here. People planned that a long time ago. Many of you are children of those who have gone before. They're no longer with us. Well, they're no longer physically with us but they're still living and working with us through you. And I hope you're a great vessel for what they taught you to do. And you're just continuing on that great legacy that they left. We also are going to have great worship. And you'll remember, I'm not talking about, well, we sing all the notes right, and we have the right volume, and we have everything perfect. Not that. But we have a heart for the Lord in our worship. It is in spirit and it is in truth. 
That's great worship. We also want to have great study. And I use that to describe the responsibility that we have to have a great Bible school program. Uh, We have Stephen leading much of that, and he does a terrific job. We want to continue that. You know, we want to have the very best in place so that we can teach every member uh, the depths of God's Word from the very beginning uh, to the very oldest among us. We also, and we also want to have great women in the church, uh, people who can teach the younger women, people, thank you, Lord, who can teach little bits of children, because I told you my experience in that, and I'm thankful, and who are great encouragers, and phone callers, and letter writers, and card writers, and on and on and on. Got to have great women in the church to go along with our great men in leadership positions. And we also, last, last week, talked about great giving. All this stuff has to be financed, and it isn't, uh, you know, we're not pushing anybody to do anything. It again goes to the attitude that we have toward worship. Is it an obligation that I feel, or am I dedicated to it? Am I given as I've purposed in my heart, or am I doing it grudgingly? It's a, do you see that most of this is really just heart matter? Getting our heart right. Listen, uh, one of these days people may look at this boonful church that's just busting at the seams and they say, those people are insane over there. I hope so. You know, insane like Jesus. Wait, what are you saying, Ken? I'm just thinking about John 2, verse 17, where it says that the zeal of God's house has eaten me up. Woo! That's how I want to feel. I just want to bounce around in joy for service to the Lord. You know what it takes? It takes great revival to build a great church. Let's pray together. After our prayer, have our parents go out and get their little kids and wait about 15, 20 seconds, then everybody else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this occasion. We can assemble and study your word together. And Lord, thank you for the challenges that you've put before us, but we kind of don't see it like a challenge because we've already committed ourselves to you and since it's your work and we know you will bless it, why, that's no challenge at all. You will make it happen if we're willing subjects. And Lord, I pray, I'm praying for me, I'm going to be a willing subject. I'm going, to, I'm going to do everything in my power within the scope of my ability and resources to make this a great church. And I pray that everybody else has that mind too. And Lord, when we all work together and see what you do with us, we, we are just going to rejoice. And we will forever do so. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us that way and for equipping us as you already have. Thank you for walking with us and providing all these great blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.